and dismiss all the elementary kids to go to their classrooms. Well, this morning we'll be continuing our sermon series, Jesus in Genesis. And so far we've examined the stories of creation and of the fall of man. And we've discovered how Jesus has been present at all times. He has always been, amen, thank you. He has always been and he will always be. And we examined that and kind of talked about how every story in scripture and in our lives is exactly the same. Mankind sins and God redeems. We sin and God redeems. And so today we're going to be moving forward by studying Genesis and and particularly looking at the story of Noah and the flood. And if you were like me, a young kid that was raised in church, the story of the flood was kind of presented to me as a cute little story, right? Just a cute little narrative. I I was taught fun, catchy songs about Noah building the ark, right? Who built the ark? Anybody? Yeah, yeah, right? Cute little story. You know, I read a lot of children's literature on the rainbow, right? It was just beautiful on all the, all the animals that walked up into the ark. But this is not a cute story. And we can't sugarcoat it. It's not a story at all highlighted by koala bears or flamingos walking up into the ark. And I want to start off by showing you guys a short clip from the 2014 movie, Noah. Because as you know, every time Hollywood picks a movie to do on a Bible story, we know it's always 100% accuracy, right? Accurate. We can never, never question the biblical literacy of a Hollywood screenwriter. So I want to show you this short clip, not because that movie is flawless and, you know, completely in line with Scripture, not at all. But I want to give you guys just a little visual a little glimpse into what that day might have looked like, what Noah might have actually witnessed with his own eyes, because I think they could have nailed this scene. I think they're really close. So you'll see some, a little bit of violence, some fighting, nothing gory, don't worry. And you'll see people rushing into the ark as this catastrophe starts to take place. So dim the lights and let's show this. Cool looking ark. Outside of the fall of man, one could easily argue that the flood is the greatest tragedy that has ever happened in the history of mankind. Easily argue that. There was a course of 1,600 years from the creation of Adam to the time of the flood. 1,600 years. You know how many children can be born over a span of 1,600 years? I mean, we pump them out every week here at Wellspring. (laughs) A lot of children can be born. We're talking... A lot of people dying. It was a horrific tragedy. And so today we're going to look at scripture and see how we can find Jesus in this story of the flood. So go ahead and open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. It should be page 5 if you're using a pew Bible. Genesis 6, starting in verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, 
and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The story of Noah spans across um, four chapters in the book of Genesis, so we obviously don't have time to dive into every single aspect of the story. But these four verses alone give us an excellent glimpse as to what was going on at this time with the human race. It says that every thought of the human heart was evil all the time. So every imagination and thought that mankind had was completely corrupt and wicked. So the evil that was present at this time among the human race was at an all-time low. An all-time low, or it could be an all-time high, however you want to look at it. So you may be wondering, what happened? How did humanity get to this point to where evil was so present in every aspect of their life? And the short and simple answer is simply that God just let people live as they wanted. There's large periods of time in Scripture, we can easily miss it if we're not paying attention, where God doesn't seem to be doing much. He kind of lets people live as they want. He's a patient God. He does not force himself on anyone. So there's big chunks of Scripture, and this is kind of one of those times leading up to this where God wasn't really doing a lot. He was letting people just live as they desired. But time and time again, when we human beings are left on our own, what happens? Things go bad, don't they? We mess up badly. We rebel against God. We set ourselves up as the authoritative voice, right, in our own lives and people around us. We give ourselves over to every kind of pleasure imaginable, and the list goes on and on and on. And it often comes to a point to where God has to show up. He has to wake us up, and sometimes he has to punish Sometimes he has to punish. And that's what the story of the flood is about. It's a story of God's judgment and punishment for the continual wicked sins of mankind. God is a patient God. There's no doubt about that. He is extremely patient. But he will only tolerate sin until it reaches a certain point. And then he will act, saying enough is enough. And it may sound harsh, but God has to punish sin. He has to punish sin. God and sin are completely incompatible with each other. They cannot go together. Think of it like this. If there's no punishment for our sins, then what's the point? If there's no punishment for our sins, then why in the world did Jesus take on flesh and pay the price that we deserve to pay? If there's no punishment for our sins, then what are we saved from? Why should we give or serve or love or care for people if there's never any consequences for our sin? And I have seen this played over many times just in my own marriage. Just my own marriage. Let's say my wife wants to engage in a meaningful conversation with me, but I'm just not there. I don't care. I'm just tuned out. I really don't want to connect. Or she asked me to help out with some things, but I don't give in. I don't help out at all because they're not very fun requests. What starts to happen over time? Separation starts to kick in, right? There's 
coldness and hardness. There's coldness in our relationship. Sometimes she doesn't even want to speak to me because I've been such a jerk like I was last night. You can ask her. There's consequences to my selfishness and to our sins. So during the time in Genesis 6 that we just read about, humanity was filled with corruption and evil, but there was one man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord, Noah. The Bible says he was a righteous man, that he walked blameless among the people of his time, and that he walked faithfully with God. And God told Noah, he said, I want you to build an ark. And if you don't know, that ark is just a massive ship, basically, made out of wood. He said, I want you to build an ark. And let's look now at verse 17 and see what else God tells Noah. So chapter 6, verse 17, just flip over one page there. Starting in verse 17, God says, I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wife with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And God did everything, and Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So God says, I'm going to bring the floodwaters on earth and destroy all life under the heavens. Everything on earth will perish. Now, if this isn't the definition of a Debbie Downer story, I don't know what is, right? Talk about your pet's heads falling off. Literally, things were horrible, and they were about to get a whole lot worse. These people really didn't believe that this catastrophe was heading towards them. So that's the bad news, right? That's the bad news. So now we're going to focus for the rest of the time on the good news. We're going to focus on the good news. So maybe you're wondering, wondering how, how was Jesus present? How was Jesus present in this horrible tragedy? Where was Jesus when all these lives were being lost and swept away by the flood? And this is where we come to a really amazing part of Scripture. And I'm pretty jacked to be talking about this today. I'm a nerd. I get really pumped up at this stuff. Sometimes Scripture uses something called typology. To teach us about the character and heart of God, we can easily miss it if we don't know about it. And typology is symbolism that represents something else, if you didn't know that. Typology is symbolism that represents something else. So it's a person or it's something in a story that represents the heart of God. And in this particular story, the ark is a symbolic picture of Christ. It's a type of Christ. The ark represents Christ in the story of the flood. That's huge. The ark represents Christ in the story of the flood. And so we're going to spend the remainder of our time examining some of the, some of the parallels this morning between Christ and the ark. And honestly, before this message, I wasn't even aware of this. I had never really studied this story much in depth, but this stuff is incredible. And I'm super pumped to talk about it. I'm going to be relying heavily from a sermon 
preached back in 2008 by a guy named Dr. Robert Hyman's Jr. It is phenomenal. And so we're going to briefly highlight um, five ways that the ark symbolizes our Lord Jesus Christ. I definitely encourage you to write these down. We're going to put them up here, and then we're going to kind of dissect them each a little bit. So here we go. Number one, the ark shows God's provision of salvation in Christ. In Genesis 6, so it says, So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch, which is kind of like tar oil, inside and out. And this passage shows that God had already ordained for Noah and his family to be saved by the flood long before one ounce of flood water hit the earth. And the same is true for God's plan for our redemption in Christ. God didn't form a plan of redemption after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden by eating of the apple. But since the beginning of time, God has planned to save humanity through providing his son as the ultimate sacrifice that each one of us deserves to pay the price for our sins. And Heimer said it well when he wrote, The ark was God's provision for the salvation of Noah, just as Christ is God's provision for the salvation of sinners. Number two, the ark shows that we are spared from God's wrath through Christ, our substitute. 1 John 4 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the ark was obviously a place of safety for Noah and his family during the flood as the wrath of God was being poured out on others. And while we deserve to pay the price for our sins, Christ in his mercy became our substitute, laying down his life and paying the price that we should be paying He took on the wrath of God on our behalf. And while God's wrath fell on the ark, it hit hard. I mean, you saw that kind of visual there. As his wrath fell on the ark, he protected every single person inside that ark. And in the same way, Jesus is our ark. Because in him, we are safe and secure from the wrath and the punishment of God. Because when God looks at us, he sees righteousness. He sees that we are in Christ and covered by his grace. Number three. The ark shows that Christ is the only way to enter salvation. Put a door in the side of the ark. That seems kind of like a dumb verse, huh? Put a door in the side of the ark. Seems very insignificant. But this verse is actually huge. Because just as the ark had one door that people can enter, there's also only one door that we can enter into relationship with God the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus had to say. You got the next one up there? There it is. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And check this out. We're not going to have a slide, but this is legit. 
God told Noah to put a door in the side of the ark. Not the front, but the side of the ark. And this is also a foreshadowing of Christ that we easily miss if we're not reading it properly. John 19.34 says, One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and the blood and water flowed. A soldier pierced Jesus' side with a spear, just as that ark had a door in the side. And this teaches us that an intimate relationship with God is only found through the door of Jesus Christ, and it's through his piercing and death that we are forgiven and given life. How awesome is that? This is amazing. Like, this is awesome stuff, guys, that we just so easily look over because we've been taught to just focus on the animals, right? This is incredible. Whew. Number four. Got it? The ark shows the absolute security of those who are in Christ. And regardless of how strong the rain or the winds were on that day, Noah and his family was safe from the flood. Back in 2004, I was vacationing with my family in, in the state of Florida when Hurricane Charlie hit the state. It came right at us. We tried to run from it, and it chased us into the other city we went into. I had never been in a hurricane, but it is an experience. I remember the whole city lost power. It was a pretty crappy vacation, I'll just say that. <laughs> the whole city lost power. We were stuck in our hotel. It's about 5 or 6 o'clock. There's no power. There's a little bit of light. And I remember standing in one of the lobbies just looking outside of the pool area. Insane rain just coming down. And I just remember watching the power of the winds just pick up the lawn chairs and just smash it against the windows, against the walls of the hotel. It was insane. And the flood of Noah was probably about a thousand times worse than that hurricane that I experienced. But yet, Noah and his family was safe inside the walls of the ark. Colossians 3 says this, Your life is hidden with Christ. And referring to the ark again, it says, So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And that's huge too. The Lord shut him in. Once we have put our faith in Christ, our eternal destiny is secure. We're hidden with Christ, and just as God shut the door on Noah, he shuts the door on us once we're inside the ark of Christ, and we are forever secure, and we can rest in his arms. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Number five, last one. The ark shows the invitation God gives to come in to Christ. Genesis 7, and the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark. You and all your household. Come into the ark. The word come is used over 500 times throughout scripture. But this is the first time it's used in all the Bible, which is pretty interesting. In Genesis 7, 500 times throughout the whole Bible, but we find it here, used for the first time. And this is an excellent picture of the invitation that Jesus gives all of us. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says what? Come to me. All who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. Come to me. Just as God told Noah to come into the ark for protection and security, Jesus is telling us to come to him for eternal security and for rest. So let's do a quick recap. So check this out. We're going to put them all up here. So through this story, here's what we learn. 
The ark shows God's provision of salvation in Christ. The ark shows that we are spared from God's wrath through Christ, our substitute. And the ark shows that Christ is the only way to enter salvation. The ark shows the absolute security of those who are in Christ. And number five, the ark shows the invitation God gives to come into Christ. So we're going to leave that list up there. And I want to get some feedback from you guys. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? What do those truths up there stir in your heart? How do they compel you to live? How do you respond to those truths? The floor is open. Let's hear from some people. Beeler. Yes, Trajan. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. He was talking about I was talking about idols earlier and how we give <laughs> we pursue everything else and worship everything else, but this is what's important rather than the idol of sports or comfort or power or money. Yeah, good. What else? Yes. Mm. As much as what does happen, but you get praise. So we need to get praise, God. You know, you protect. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, sometimes we always want a blessing that we can feel or experience, but he's saying a lot of times, God, it's not what God does, but what he doesn't do, you know, that can protect us and be a blessing to us and we can miss out on easily. Yeah, that's good. Justin. hot jma that's good he's saying he's saying a lot of times we think oh you know you know to get to god to be accepted we got to do all these things and earn our righteousness and his love god's just saying come the door's just open he just loves us as we are we don't have to prove ourselves to him or work for anything that's good did you have something phil
Yeah, that's good. He's saying that he can put his trust and find comfort in these realities when life is horrible, right? And everything's kind of falling apart and going downhill. That's good. Excellent stuff. The story of the flood is the same story that we live every day. It might not be quite as dramatic, but it's the same story that we live every day. We sin and God redeems. We sin and God redeems over and over Repeat that a thousand times. God is holy and just, and he has to punish sin. But he provided a way through it that we could have never done on our own strength. He provided his son Christ as an ark in our lives and offers us the invitation to come to him to find salvation, to be spared from God's wrath, to be forgiven of our sins, and to have our eternity secured in his love. So what should that do to our hearts? How should that truth and reality affect the way that we live every day? It should make us grateful. (laughs) Grateful for the fact that we've been spared for the punishment and death that we deserve. And beyond gratitude, we should be motivated to not be okay with seeing other people perish. We should not be okay with seeing lost people perish. We can't be thankful for what we have in Christ and not want that for others. If our salvation is unmerited, which it is, how can we withhold that to other people who we think are too lost or too messed up? We've been given the greatest message in the history of the world, but we oftentimes fail to share it because we're afraid of what people are going to think of us Or because some people rub us wrong and annoy us, and so we write them off and we reject them without sharing the greatest message the world has ever known to them. And I think one of the biggest struggles, to be completely honest, is that we just don't care that much about lost people in our lives. We don't care that much that people are perishing every day, right around us, right in front of us. And I'm just as guilty as everyone I know what scripture says about judgment and the wrath of God. Acts 17, it says, For he has set a judge, set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. John 12 says, There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. And the very words I have spoken will condemn him at the last day. There are people that we encounter every day. No. Co-workers, friends, neighbors, teammates, classmates who are lost and are perishing every single day. Some have rejected the message, but a lot of them would be willing to receive it if we would share it with them, if we would live it out in front of them. But oftentimes we don't. For me, I'm so selfish thinking about my life and my job and my hobbies and my interests and my plans and passions that I neglect that there's people every day that I walk right past, look them in the eye, and they're lost and perishing, and I live as if I don't even give a crap about it. And it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable for me to live that way or for any of us to live that way if we claim to follow Christ. And so we've got to get back to the starting point. 
what's the starting point? If we claim to be in Christ, the starting point is gratitude. Gratitude is always the starting point for a life that gives itself away to others. Gratitude is always the starting point for a life that gives itself away to others. I frequently encounter people who say something like this to me. Justin, I'm not very motivated to spend time with God. Justin, I don't really have a desire to pray or to read my Bible. What's going on? Why is that? And I always, always try to bring that conversation, that discussion back to gratitude. Some of you have had this talk, you know, last week, so you know exactly where I'm going with this. So imagine this. It's 6 a.m., your alarm goes off, your feet hit the ground, and a thought enters your head. And that thought says, man, I need to read my Bible. Man, I need to pray a little bit. It's just, I just need to do that before work. I know I'm not going to do it this afternoon or tonight. You have two choices, right? You can either ignore that voice, or you can choose to go through the horrible experience of you know, reading the Bible or praying, because it can be such a burden, right? But you're, even if you give in to it, you've done it out of complete guilt and obligation, neither of which are very compelling, right? Now rewind the story. It's 6 a.m., your alarm goes off, your feet hit the ground, and you take the time to remember what God has done for you. You remember that you've been spared from God's wrath through the life and death of Jesus Christ. You remember that your sins have been forgiven and are covered by the grace of God. You remember that your eternity has been forever sealed in Christ, and there is nothing that can separate you from his love. And immediately, you're filled with gratitude. Immediately. How can you not be? How can you not be? How can you not be? You realize that everything good in your life is a gift from God, and so your natural response is to give it back. And you won't spend time with God that morning out of guilt or obligation. You'll spend time with God because you're so filled with gratitude that it's the natural overflow of your heart to know him more and to praise him and to share him with others because you're aware and reminded of how good he's been to you. And just as gratitude will create a desire within us to know God more, it's gratitude that will compel us to share his message with lost people. And if it's not rooted in gratitude, we're doing it out of guilt and obligation, and people can pick up on that. People know when we're turning them into our projects, right? (laughs) They can sense that. They know when we're trying to convert them just to get another spiritual notch on our belt to feel good about our evangelistic efforts, or whatever you call it. If we're not filled with gratitude for what Christ has done for us, we certainly won't be compelled to share his love with others. So where's your gratitude this morning? Towards Christ. Where's your level of gratitude towards Christ this morning and what he's done for you? Is it non-existent? Have you been taking his love for granted for far too long and it's time to change? It's time to have a heart check? Have you even experienced the incredible life that Christ offers you? Regardless of where you are today on this journey, if you need someone to talk with or pray with, please come see me after service or Pastor Bob or someone on staff 
or maybe a friend or relative that you came with that knows God and cares about you. Only his love can fill us with gratitude that leads to a life of compassion and service to others. Let's pray together.